0: In a major restructuring effort, Macy's announced plans to shutter 120 of its brick and mortar stores over the next three years. Meanwhile, Sephora has plans to open 100 new US stores in 2020 alone. And this just in, Forever 21 is looking to make a retail comeback with a new owner. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, February 10th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Today, we're joined by Carl Boutet and Brandon Riel. Carl is the chief retail strategist for Canada's Studio Rx. Brandon is a director at Alvarez and Marcel's Consumer and Retail Practice. Carl, Brandon, thank you both for joining us today.
1: Pleasure to be here. Right. Thank you, man.
0: So Macy's is officially downsizing its fleet of department stores. The retailer released a restructuring plan designed to stabilize profitability and position the company for growth last week, which includes closing 125 of its underperforming stores and its Cincinnati headquarters. Macy's will also move its e-commerce HQ from San Francisco to New York City. Macy's will also scale down its story concept by 50%. While the department store will be shuttering scores of its traditional stores, Macy's is planning to cut some ribbons, too. The retailer is currently testing a new store format called Market by Macy's, which is a smaller format off-mall shop that features curated merchandise and local goods, as well as food and beverage and special events. The first market by Macy's opened in Dallas last Thursday with plans to open more in the near future. So is Macy's plan to close underperforming stores while focusing on flagships and its off-mall brand, The Smart, move forward?
1: Yeah, first of all, when you hear these kind of announcements, it's very unfortunate news. It's an iconic brand, very historical. It's been around well over a century. Macy's represents a lot of things, a lot of people. We wish the, the people who were impacted by this, the store associates, the, the managers, the directors, the corporate associates were impacted by the moves, the best of luck. Uh, and thankfully, the retail environment is doing well overall, so there should be opportunities out there for them. Before getting get into the details, a little bit of historical context, Macy's, as it stands today, is really a conglomeration of the acquisitions that Federated and Macy's did with the May Company in Dayton. They were distinct brands out there like Burdines, Spa-Marche, Marshall Fields, and others that were rebranded as Macy's over the last 15, 20 years. So these regional department stores had a lot of uh, brand recognition and very loyal following in these local markets. And uh, when they were rebranded as Macy's, it wasn't that brand recognition or that loyalty that a typical Macy's store would have. So, and they were also in an underperforming market as well. So um, that's a little bit of context. So, but, but from a transformation perspective, never easy. A big a major component of a transformation is the cost-cutting initiatives and store closures and resource reductions. The good news from that, there will be capital available for upgrades and to resize the store fleet and establish a new store concept. It will be challenging, especially in today's environment. How can Macy's reimagine the department store to really fit the needs of the modern-day customer? It's promising to see the Smaller format stores are being positioned, and that's really where the customer is headed today in today's environment. As they go forward, for the next couple of years, the innovation strategy should be centered 100% on the customer experience and retaining their base but really aggressively go up in the newer customers, especially the smaller format stores. So while they're departing underperforming moles, there are opportunities in uh, close to the towns and communities, and really environments that will resonate with the modern customers. So, uh, challenging times ahead for Macy's for sure, uh, but there are chances to reignite the brand in the next couple of years. So we'll see where this goes.
2: Yeah, I, I'll, let's start with the good news. So, going on this self imposed, pretty strict diet of CapEx is the play. Everybody's trying to downsize and right size and reallocate the resources uh, more strategically into spaces like this new format. And, uh, you know, hats off to the team there for pushing that. And that's a pretty drastic move for a brand like Macy's to, to downsize at that level hopefully one that will uh, inspire others to to probably think a little more aggressively around the changes that they need to incur. Because Brian is, I think you're seeing tough times as well ahead. And, and the fact that the model is broken, uh, the the department store, what created that, you know, that legacy has, you know, the conditions of economically and, and socially and the way people um, wanted to engage uh, you know with their time and money has drastically changed. so is this cut is this reformat drastic enough? I'm not insinuating anything beyond saying, well, this is all about e-commerce versus in store it's not. that's part of the dynamic, but it's not the whole dynamic. Departments store the model for not just for Macy's but for many others even to the ones that are even, even more exclusive like Nordstrom's and and, and less exclusive, yeah, more so for JCPenney, these are all, on, they're all facing the same dynamics. Here in Canada, we had 10 years ago, we had five different department store chains. We're basically down to, let's call it two for being generous, but really one. And so that's, you know, I think that's, things are sort of accelerated here because we're a smaller market. The US market, obviously the demographics are probably a bit better. There's some more growth there. But the fundamental change is how you position yourself to create value in the market. And I think the shift that's happening uh, in the department store sector is going to be more and more one of real estate. And if you're going to see them behaving more and more like realtors, where they're going to be space allocators more than they're going to be brand allocators. And let, and then let the brands come to them and carve out the space and use the traffic that they can generate to justify uh, having those brands invest in those spaces. And so what we're talking about how brands are investing right now in commercial environments, well, we're obviously looking at a lot more than just uh, goods. We're looking at a lot of you know food concepts like this new format is exploring entertainment, hospitality. All these things are going to have to blur. And department stores are going to have to get away from this model of sales per square foot and just basically product-centric retailing and expand the offering to really keep driving traffic into their buildings, which in Macy's case is fortunate because they have fantastic real estate. If they didn't have that, they would already be closed.
0: Beauty retailer Sephora is making serious moves on the retail landscape. The LVMH-owned retailer announced last week that it plans to open 100 new brick-and-mortar stores this year, marking Sephora's biggest expansion to date. Sephora will focus on opening off-mall stores in smaller US cities like Charlotte, North Carolina, and Nashville, Tennessee. On the digital front, Sephora is working with social media platforms like Facebook Messenger, where customers can book salon services directly through the Facebook app and incorporating technologies like skin tone scanners in its stores. So what can other retailers take away from Sephora's success?
2: So, I mean, it's interesting to, you know, we just finished with the Macy's story, we go right into Sephora and and how... Different they are yet. Think about Macy's and how they really drove beauty and cosmetics. And as a lot of department stores, that was sort of the the key entry point. And they were, you know, delivering a very similar experience, but breaking down the brand separately and having each brand sort of position itself. Sephora pulled that all underneath its roof and is just running away with it right now. And I'm not so sure about why the announcement at this time, why they need to come out and say hundred, maybe they're just trying to, they take a, it's an opportunistic time to say that as they know, as others are struggling and LVMH stock is doing great. But that said, I mean, there's, they're clearly the champions right now in, in the cosmetic sector, even for a, a Goliath like LVMH, you know, driving a lot of their growth in a market that's otherwise pretty soft. I think they're the, poster child for a lot of us retail pundits around this integration of digital and physical that we've all been yammering about for years. But the fact is, is they're really executing on it and they seem to have a very, a very solid Grasp on how what those levers are between the two and, and how one influences the other. So, even within this announcement, they spent a lot of time, you know, talking about how they were going to also increase their investments in social media and, and online engagement and creating new uh, digital tools that both their associates and their clients could use. So, listen, hats off to Sephora, and, and I'm glad to have the positive stories, obviously. But my concern sometimes when these organizations get a little over-enthusiastic and make these kind of announcements is they they might be setting themselves up to overshoot the runway a bit. And yes, they have a very successful, very profitable model, but just, you know, let's take it in steps and hope they get to those hundred and then more. But the other interesting part about that announcement is they made it clear that it was out of mall. So they wanted to make that clear, which I'm sure a lot of real estate developers aren't so happy to hear that specific piece of the puzzle. But. Again, good for them to uh, keep pushing ahead. I mean, they've done their homework. They've looked at markets. They've brought up a half dozen, including like Nashville, which I'm not sure why it's considered a small market. But, anyways, I mean, smaller markets. It's obviously smaller than New York City, but it's just going more regional. Smaller footprint was also something they mentioned. So, is it 100? Is it 200? Is it 50? Is it 10? I mean, it's. The number is almost sort of irrelevant because it depends on the footprints. I and mean, if they're going to open hundred kiosks, which they don't really do, but let's just say for argument's sake that they would, right. you know, what's the impact of that? So, you know, versus is it 10 flagships or is it 20 community stores? Is it a hundred? So, I mean, it's a number. It's a nice number. It's a round number. It communicates nicely. You know, look at what we're doing right now. It gives them one more reason for us to talk about them, which... Good
1: for them. Yeah, I think uh, any publicity is good publicity, especially when you uh taking a really aggressive stance of opening new stores. So, again, hats off to LVMH and Sephora. I think one of the driving motivating factors here is that Ulta, one of their main direct competitors, is very aggressive with their store openings. And they're always releasing you know, PR statements about opening 100 stores in this market and that market. So uh, Sephora is uh, going head-to-head up against Ulta, and it's a clear statement of their direction going forward. They're really a shining example of a company that knows their customers. They talked endlessly about personalization and connecting digital, physical together. They want a few retailers that can really truly execute it. So I can agree more with Carl. So the store openings, you know, it's encouraging they're going to be very much uh, inclusive and accessible, centered in local communities, town centers, main streets, and less of dependency on, on malls especially all the co-tenants that are now going bankrupt or facing financial troubles. It really puts Sephora in the uh, the driver's seat of the, where they can open and, and uh, really helps to do, revitalize some of these downtown cities in, in North America. Another encouraging sign is that Sephora is up to the plate, especially with the, the trend, very positive trends around wellness and health and beauty. Sephora is just very well positioned to continue to grow in this space and uh, It's definitely one of the uh, shining examples of companies that are doing quite well in this environment.
0: And finally, struggling apparel retailer Forever 21 announced last week that it had reached an $81 million deal to sell its retail business to a group that includes its landlord, Simon Property Group, as well as Brookfield Property Partners and Authentic Brands. Forever 21 made headlines last September when it filed for bankruptcy and announced plans to close up to 178 U.S. stores. And unless another bid comes through, Forever 21 aims to close the deal this week. So with Forever 21's target demographic becoming more interested in niche categories and sustainable brands, will this fast fashion retailer be able to make a successful comeback?
1: Yeah, I think this is a classic case of codependencies where the mall owners just signing authentic brands have stepped in to prevent mass vacancies in their properties. We've seen this before with the acquisition of some of the Aeropostale properties just to keep a presence in the mall. It's not so simple, unfortunately, for Forever 21. They've had five to ten years of uh, downcycling business as the trends have really changed significantly in the the market. Their core customer has really migrated over to fast fashion, but also to a more sustainable fashion or uh, abandoned the brand uh, completely. So there's been a lack of customer interest, underperforming stores, assortments that simply don't resonate. I really view this as a short-term gap fill. It will keep the brand sustain the brand for a while and keep the presence in the malls, but there are really longer-term, fundamental business strategic misdirections that really need to be resolved in order to turn the brand around. So it, it's uh, to require quite an investment by the mall owners who now have a lot of business stake within the brand that has been declining for years. So it's going to take a concerted effort to do another transformation and really try and find ways to, to appeal to a customer that has abandoned the brand. I, I'm not feeling really optimistic about their the prospects going forward, to be honest.
2: Yeah, I think going back to our last story about announcing 100 openings and are, are they overshooting the runway? And this is a cautionary tale of how forever 21 overshot the runway. They were, you know. Doing very well, and as Brendan pointed out, five you know plus years ago, and just thought they could just keep replicating that and replicating it and surfing this wave of malls and, and mall traffic and and building on that, and just really went way too big, way too fast. And that hopefully is now you know lessons that can be learned elsewhere. In this case as well, I think it's a, there was a, a loss of focus, uh, which can happen too when you grow very quickly, and, and maybe the operational discipline isn't isn't where it needs to be. The allotment, the merchandising seems to be a key piece of this, and not not my area of expertise, but something that I keep hearing coming back. And I know we ta- discussed the last time I was on the show, you know, when the, the announcement had come out and what these changes were due to. And and we also talked about sustainability and changing values. I don't, I you know, I still don't think that was necessarily at the core here. I think that's going to come out more and more as we move forward, and I, I certainly hope it does. This, as Brendan points out, is is a stopgap. It's not something that you know is going to solve any problems. If anything, it's probably just going to reimpose more debt on on a struggling, even even if it's a, th- a thinned out, slimmer version of uh, and, and less stored version of itself. Unless they really have a, a new way of approaching and the consumer with an offering that's much that resonates at a much higher level than it has in the last couple of years, then they're just delaying the unavoidable. and then they'll just make the cost of that that much higher. It is interesting, though, to see these mall operators getting more and more invested into these retailers, something we've seen in other markets as well, where the Traditionally, these real estate operators are now getting their hands dirty a bit and trying to get in, invested directly into retail. You know, we're seeing even some cases where these mall operators are, are working more on off of revenue than they are off a of rent, which is a fascinating dynamic where they have a lot more skin in the game. Let's say, but it's I don't in terms of Forever Twenty One, I don't think this is going to be that the experiment that pays off, but it's going to make the mall operators a lot more sensitive to. The dynamics of retail and and the concerns, really, and and help them be maybe a little bit closer than they've been in the past to what the struggles are, so that they can create properties that will hopefully better serve the retailers and and agreements with those retailers that are more in cooperation and uh, and almost partnerships than just being seeing the retailers, you know, a customer that can one goes another one will take its place, which was historically the way the industry was seen, we know that's no longer the case. And and again, I don't think Forever 21 is going to change that dynamic either. I think Caring Group's doing a really good job. And we were talking about polarization earlier, but when we think about how luxury, you know, is regained, and so we talk a lot about LVMH and with the Sephora example. But think about the Caring Group and with brands like Gucci, and and this is really high end, and and probably doesn't resonate with a lot of us because we're not necessarily typical Gucci buyers. But I think that's a good example, and and how it's influencing others to move back up, like Ralph Lauren and. Michael Kors, and they're trying to kind of regain that that upscale market, maybe not as upscale as Gucci, but still, I think those are brands and they have so much legacy and brand equity that they can leverage. So that's for them to regain. The ones that have a brand uh, legacy or equity tied to mid-market are going to find it a much, much much more difficult. The gap example is probably not the easiest one to, to think about because of just how they're struggling right now. But yeah, I mean, there's cycles too, right? I mean, I think one of the temptations in any of these markets is being to, again, replicate and grow in volume and mass as quickly as possible and lose some of that exclusivity and that edge that made you special in the first place. So any brand that's right now trying to regain that is probably you know become a little more exclusive, a little more uh, disciplined, and less uh, all you know all encompassing and trying to be speak to something more specific target market are probably in a better position.
1: Yeah, great point, Carl. And I think another couple of segments that are doing outstandingly well are the direct consumer market with the companies like Nike, Lego, and Away, and other other brands that are really taking their product and the services and offerings throughout the consumer via showrooms, otherwise known as retail stores, and uh, owning the, the brand, owning the messaging, owning the relationship, and avoiding the, the middleman, the department store. Anything centered around the wellness and health and lifestyle is going to continue to do outstandingly really well. Sephora is kind the fringe of that, but I'm probably speaking more to the Patagonias or the Little Lemons of the world who are experiencing mm-hmm. significant growth just with that messaging and their branding and their inspiring stories are really translating to tight relationship with customers and very, very close it. bonds that are that are there last for years. So these are the kind of things that customers are looking for as inspiration, for joy, for something that's going to uh, help, help their lifestyle, their wellness, something that's going to sustain them for, for a long period of time. Luxury mentioned, uh, LVMH's houses, rich bonds, carryings will continue to do quite well and their messaging is on point, the the right product offerings, the merchandising strategies, the pricing, and overall the global economy is doing relatively well. So I think that will continue to resonate with the top earners in, in the globe. It's with the middle, we speak of the gap, and uh, J. Crew and others where there will continue to be challenges.
2: Yeah, I just maybe build on the direct-to-consumer as a solution piece. I think we have to be careful in who we see, you know, the brands, how they approach that and where they're coming from because... Nike is a perfect example of one that's been part of their DNA from the start, almost, and they're really regaining control over their channels and tightening the ship on and messaging and the way that the consumer sees them. There's really some fascinating brands like that have come along, like, like Brandon mentioned Away, and, and others. We have the Casper IPO that just happened. I mean, these are all inspiring stories, but I'd maybe have create some caution around these D2C brands that came out of the last decade that were so hopped up on venture capital that is right. the numbers and skewed our perception around what their actual success was. But the idea of owning the channel, owning the relationship like Lululemon has done so well and, and creating community. These are all, you know, make more than about the product. These are all now, you know, lessons that every retailer, every brand has to really embrace and understand because that's the only way you're going to, be successful moving forward.
0: Great. Any last uh, pieces to add there?
2: So, I mean, I, I think it's just interesting when we're talking about juxtapositions, polarization. Just look at the right now, probably the two richest men, unfortunately, you know, I mean, we have to talk about men, we can't say women, but <laughs> ten, two richest men are basically Arnaud and Bezos. You know, Bezos has obviously got a good got good lead, but Arno is is catching up quickly. So it's really, I think, it really sort of speaks to what the market dynamic is. So you know, Amazon and LVMH and the two richest men in the you know, creating the two richest men in the world. So if there's not a sort of a more indicative statement around where this market is, I think those the market's capitalization, I guess, or so the, the market's
1: reaction to these two
2: phenomena seems to be pretty clear.
1: We're seeing. Uh Really, two dichotomies: is the the inclusivity and community side and building relationships, and then in, in of the, the lifestyle brands, homeless brands, or the consumer brands, and, and the reimagined brick and mortar stores, and then also the other end of the spectrum is the exclusivity, <laughs> excuse me, exclusivity with LVMH uh, and Hermès brands, uh, where it's all about luxury and um, the exclusivity of the products, the the uh, prestige. So it's definitely two ends. <clears throat> Of the spectrum, and uh, it's just the, uh, the ones in the middle are the ones who are challenged to uh, either they're going to be aspirational luxury, or have some element of exclusivity, or they're more tied to the community and building connections connections to the to the customers. So um, there's certainly elements within those two spectrums, but it's uh, it seems to be a paradigm shift over the last uh, last few years.
2: And maybe that paradigm is, can also be explained in, in exclusivity, you know. Making it all about exclusivity and uniqueness versus convenience and, and, and price. You know? So that's usually the way I paint it. But it's, you know, community, I think, can, can maybe translate in both of those cases. But regardless, you just don't want to be average in anything these days. You need to really choose your lane and just push really hard at it.
1: Have the product available at the time and the place and the customer wants to engage with your brand, and regardless of what channel they want to engage with you, and make it easy for them. And uh, that's one element of the operational efficiency you can, if you can get in and out of the store. I mean, there's discovery, there's the dwell time, and then there's building community and connection to a brand. So I think uh, it depends on the customer journey and what the customer's looking for. And it's up to the retailers to step to the challenge and really uh, set the stage for the next five to 10 years.
0: Can't wait to have you guys on again. And thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for
1: having me. And great chatting with Carl, as always. Great. Yeah, thank you. Have a great week.
2: Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast.